Welcome to NARPM Radio, your source for property management practices and ideas to help your career, delivered to fit your busy schedule. NARPM Radio, get tuned in. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Gail Phillips, the CEO for NARPM. We are delighted to have you with us today as we bring you a special webinar on Protect Your Firm from Costly Online Traps. Our special guest presentation will be by Blake Hageman, attorney at law with Kane Jeffers in Richmond, Virginia. Blake has a great deal of real estate background, represents several real estate companies, and is a former attorney for the Virginia Association of Realtors. Blake is a friend of many NARPA members, and we're really excited to have him here. During the presentation, if you have any questions, you can type your questions in the question box on the control panel, and we'll get to as many as possible. But at this time, I'm turning the session over to Blake. Thank you for being with us, Blake. Well, thank you, Gail, and thank you for the opportunity to present to a group I'm very familiar with and have had the pleasure to present to here in the, at the state level. Well, folks, today I'm here to talk to you about a topic that fascinates me. And my goal here today is, is to both bring to your attention some significant risks and also provide you avenues to protect yourself in the online environment. I particularly became interested with this when I worked at the State Association of Realtors. I've spoken internationally and nationally on the topic of how real estate licensees, property managers, can protect themselves online. And it's a real passion of mine. So I'm gonna run through some topics that you might not have heard about, some you might have heard about. But the end goal here is to provide you some tools. So our primary objectives today are to, what ways to protect your client's privacy. In other words, practical tips and resources. We're all gonna, also gonna talk about key issues and practices to protect you and your association especially as they pertain to intellectual property infringement, defamation, antitrust liability, and some recent ADA compliant litigation regarding websites. Now, I do have to offer a disclaimer. The information that I'm providing you is for information purposes. Many of you are not in Virginia. I'm a licensed attorney in Virginia, and none of what I'm saying is legal advice. So anything that I provide you, you wanna work with your attorney in your jurisdiction when putting together your materials and your protections. All right, with that being said, let's move on. Okay, folks, this scares me very bad. Client privacy, because it affects law firms too. Ultimately, real estate firms, property management firms, law firms contain an enormous amount of sensitive information about their clients. And hackers are becoming increasingly good at accessing that information through simple tricks, like switching two letters in a bank's name, and a, an employee clicks on it, and they're in your system. In fact, some companies, including ours, cover our webcam at this point, because hackers have found ways to log into your computer and view you through a webcam, okay? With that being said, it's not only outside third-party hackers that concern me, it's disgruntled employees. And some of these disgruntled employees that 
learn that they're going to be terminated or have a suspicion that they're going to be terminated might have the inclination to put a thumb drive in and get all your sensitive client sensitive information and then blast it all over the internet as a goodbye present to you and your company. Okay, and this happens to both companies large and small. This is not limited to your mega corporations. And my goal here today is let's make it harder for them. Property management firms are especially in a unique position. And as property management as a practice of real estate, as a discipline is growing throughout the country, we're seeing property management companies become more innovative. And they're using web technology and interactive websites to do things like accept tenant applications on behalf of their landlord clients. Well, oftentimes those tenant applications contain, contain a bevy of sensitive client information from that tenant. So security number, income, uh, uh, their address, their names, that's all extraordinarily sensitive data that a, a bad actor could use to steal their identity and, and uh, destroy their, their reputations and then they're gonna come after you to destroy your company for the breach. So it's an efficient way to communicate. I think it's the wave of the future but we have to put in place protections to protect that information coming into our websites. All right, one uh, citation I have for you here that I thought was an excellent resource to gain an, a general understanding of cybersecurity for risk management comes from a Depart United States Department of Commerce website that provides information on a cybersecurity framework. That's for you to look at with you and your attorney and your IT professional. Check it out, I think you'll find it useful. Okay, now some of your companies have in-house IT professionals. And we'll talk about that in a second, but generally what I see is that most companies hire vendors to create, manage, and maintain online and computer systems that collect sensitive client data. Well, the first thing I would say about this is when you select a vendor to provide these type of services, shop around, check around the internet, make sure they're reputable before engaging in them, before engaging them. Uh, you know, one thing I also wanted to add, three things I want to add that you should include in any contract with one of these vendors that's going to have access to the sensitive client information is and your contract with these vendors that set up these web portals and have access to sensitive client data, you'll want to have strong language in there to the effect of if there's a data breach to that vendor's due to that vendor's negligence, they agree to hold you harmless and to indemnify you. In other words, to cover your potential losses because of their negligence. You'll want to also have something in the contract that specifically warrants that that vendor contract, in that vendor contract that states that the contractor warrants that they are using the current industry standard for cybersecurity. And furthermore, that they will continue to update and upgrade their systems to keep current with generally accepted cybersecurity protocols. I think it's, a, it's an incredibly important warranty you need to get in your, your contract. Now, one thing I didn't put on this slide, but I did want to mention, 
confidentiality provisions in these contracts, these vendor contracts. You should have strong confidentiality provisions, again, preventing the disclosure of sensitive data as defined by you and your, your IT professional and attorney. But also, not just an agreement with the vendor to keep information confidential, but they need to warrant that any subcontractors they use keep any information they come into contact with while servicing your system, they keep confidential too. So you need to protect yourself from, you need to make sure that you have that understanding with the vendor and any subcontractors that they use. And, and folks, while, while these are important provisions that I feel that need to go into contracts, probably the most useful thing you can do is to find a reputable in the, information technology consultant to help set these systems up. And again, shop around, find the good ones out there to recommend good protections to protect that sensitive client data. And when you do draft, when you do get that vendor that you're very comfortable with, have an attorney that's familiar with intellectual property, familiar with these types of uh, these types of vendor agreements. Have a look at it. Again, I know it might seem like the due diligence you're doing in advance, the cost to you know engage an attorney and an IT consult an IT vendor to set these systems up might be expensive on the front end. The back, if you don't set these protections up. The cost to your company for a breach of client data, should you not take these safeguards, could result in massive liability to your company. And it has caused some companies and law firms to shut down. So I throw that out there as a, uh, as a friendly uh, suggestion that you, you get on it up front. Another thing I think that every firm should have, every property management firm should have is a data protection policy. Now there's no shortage of templates out there. I'd have your attorney take a look at anything that you end up signing, but this has a lot to do with employees. And it makes clear which employees and agents are entitled to access and manage sensitive data. In other words, you don't want everybody in the company to be able to log in and access social security numbers of all your clients or every tenant application that comes in. It's just simply not a, a good risk management practice. There should be a need to know basis on who has access to that information. You know, one, one key example of that in your data protection plan that you might want to include is who is allowed to have access to that sensitive information on their smartphones. Can that information leave the company? Are you comfortable with your, your, your employees having the ability to use their smartphones to access sensitive client information outside of your office? You need to make that decision. And folks, this is something I'm gonna get back to quite a bit. Having good employment policies in place is, is great. You wanna have those, especially if a regulatory agency or uh, an attorney with that's adverse to you comes a calling, it's good to show that you have a data protection policy. But it's also important that you provide periodic training to your employees and agents to let them know what their roles are, what their rights are, and honestly, to periodically run audits to make sure that there's compliance. 
and I don't mean you have to educate folks on this every day, but a regular basis to you might mean a month. It might mean every quarter. You want to talk to your risk management professional about that. Kind of going dovetailing the client privacy topic, because it, it really is a, a topic I really want you to focus on in terms of the, the potential for data breach. Tenants that submit information through your website and your own client, uh, your landlord clients. There are a lot of privacy laws out there that already exist that you're required to comply with. And I listed a couple of them, several from the Federal Trade Commission on Privacy and Security of Client Information Online. And because we have 50 different state uh, legislatures, some have more stringent requirements in place. For example, California. And so I uh, attached a couple links here to the National Council of State Legislators. They're an excellent clearinghouse for state laws on a number of issues, and they have a, a couple sections here on related to internet privacy. So see if your state applies there. And of course, you're an attorney that's licensed and barred in your state can be very helpful in helping you narrow down what's required of you in your terms and conditions of use and in your policies. Okay, online traps. Moving beyond the client data protection issue, which I think is absolutely critical to protect your business, I have to tell you that the internet is a plaintiff's attorney's dream. Email is a plaintiff's attorney's dream. When something's out there, it's out there forever. And we're going to talk about defamation shortly. I mean, you can Google my name and things that come up, legal videos I've done from 13 years ago still pop up. I mean, it's really out there forever. And if a plaintiff, if someone has a gripe and the plaintiff's attorney is so inclined to take the case, they just have to print, hit print. And if they have an actionable claim, they just have to go to the courthouse. It's not spoken at that point. It's in writing. Another thing I'm going to address in this presentation is intellectual property belonging to others, because this is another issue people get have some trouble with. Okay, so let's start out with the intellectual property infringement. Okay, the first rule of thumb I would offer you, and I think it's kind of the golden rule, only post material on your website that you own, that you created yourself, or that you have permission to use. I have seen this so many times where in good faith, an employee of a company in order to make an article pop will go online, search for an image, copy and paste that image. They don't see a copyright symbol on it, so they assume it's free. And then they put it on top of that article. Well, what they don't know is you don't have to have a copyright symbol and it doesn't have to be registered with the copyright office in order for it to be copyrighted. The moment that photograph is taken, it's the, it's the ownership of the person that took the photograph. So what some companies have done that house big libraries of photographs and uh, essentially sell these photographs for licensing fees have done is that in their photographs that they own, they've embedded software. And when your employee that acts in good faith or your agent that acts in good faith posts that picture, having seen no copyright symbol on it, on your website, I don't know how they're able to do it, but these companies that house these massive warehouses full of photos 
are able to send algorithms or bots throughout the internet that immediately lock on to that software within the photograph. A couple weeks later, maybe a week later, you're going to get a letter from their attorney saying either warning you to stop, cease and desist and take the picture down, but oftentimes saying you, uh, you're infringing our copyright, please remit $500 and don't do it again or else we're gonna pursue further legal remedies. And oftentimes they do. So again, only post, instruct your employees and agents, only post photographs or articles that they have permission to use. And when it comes to, to articles, it's also very easy to copy and paste articles that might be very useful to the industry onto your website. But remember, that's someone else's writing. That's somebody else's intellectual property. And oftentimes, if you just shoot them a simple email and say, do you mind if I post your great article on my website? They'll send you back permission saying, sure, because they want to promote their article too. But if you don't have that or some kind of licensing agreement to use that article, you're in, you could be potentially infringing upon their intellectual property and you could get sued. Um, now, I'm not talking about if you post a link with a, a brief sentence that says, check out this great article on property management trends, and it takes them directly to that person's site. But you certainly don't want to post the text of the article. All right. Another thing I wanted to bring to your attention is when people, let's say your company has a blog, and this is becoming increasingly popular, or a closed Facebook group, and what these are called are interactive service platforms under the, the nomenclature of the law. And a lot of companies allow third parties to post content on that site without reviewing it. So what can happen is somebody can post something that's an infringing picture on your blog or your, your Facebook closed group or, or whatever uh, mechanism, social media mechanism you market yourself without you knowing it. And you might just become a party to that intellectual property lawsuit unless you avail yourself of the protections of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act Safe Harbor. Now, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of how you set that up. I, I, I've enclosed a link that provides pretty good information on how you can embed that in your terms and conditions of use. And I, again, talk to your attorney about how to set this up, but it's not very difficult. The Copyright Office allows you to register an agent fairly simply that you place prominently somewhere in your terms and conditions of use that can receive notification about when someone believes their copyright is being infringed. And then there are certain steps that they can take to, to mitigate your liability and create a safe harbor for you should you follow the act. Again, I would I'd encourage you to look at that link but it's an incredible protection for people that allow third parties to post on their interactive internet platforms. Another thing I wanted to mention is defamation. And this is one of my favorite topics. All right, defamation is generally, some people call it libel, some people call it slander, depending on whether it's spoken or written. They're all, they both fall under the rubric of defamation. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, but when people get behind the keyboard, they're about 10 foot tall and they can bench about 500 pounds. 
and they say things that they would never, ever say in a conversation face-to-face -face with the person. Well, the problem with that is, again, it's out there forever. It's online. Even if they send a disparaging third-party email. So let's say what defamation is. Defamation is generally speaking, you'll want to check your state law on this, but defamation generally speaking is posting or sending to a third party false statement of fact that harms someone's reputation, causes damages to their reputation. And in some states, there's something called defamation per se, where if you make that false statement, you post it, and it's about someone's business reputation, there is an automatic presumption created in favor of the plaintiff, and they don't have to allege damages. The defendant has to prove what they're alleging is correct. So my advice to you to, to prevent running into this situation is many times one of these 10-foot-tall, 500-pound bench pressers will post something nasty or send something nasty to you via email. Before replying, count to a thousand. And then after you count to a thousand, don't reply negatively. Just, just don't address it in a public forum. Because ultimately, again, you're wading into the mud with them and you might be so upset that you might step into the realm of defamation yourself. So my advice to you is just don't post anything nasty online. Now I want to address the Communication Decency Act that also deals with defamation. There's a particular provision. This is a federal law. If it's followed correctly, it could protect your firm from liability for defamatory comments posted on your site by others. Of course, there are exceptions that you'll want to talk about with your, your counsel. But the main thing I, I would advise you on this is although there's, there is protection out there for that kind of behavior, in your terms and conditions of use where you have that DMCA safe harbor protection and all the other uh, requirements to post on your site, have a zero tolerance policy for when people engage in uh, disorderly conduct or attack one another. And require them to click check a box saying, you know what, we agree to these terms and conditions of use. And once they agree to those terms and conditions of use, if they start posting nasty things, you have every right to take it down. Let's not even involve the law in this. Let's just set a zero tolerance policy that we don't allow this on our websites and we will engage in it on other people's websites. Now, other protections. This, this has come to my attention uh, in the past four or five years. And that has to do with social media policies. I'm a firm believer that every firm needs to have a well-crafted social media policy. And again, I advise you to work with IT professionals and your association attorney, I'm sorry, your firm attorney or an attorney in your area familiar with social media law or intellectual property law to take a look at what you put forward. But the National Labor Relations Board has weighed in heavily with respect to social media and what employees, your employees and agents can say online about the company. Because ultimately, to fall under the National Labor Relations Act, you, it doesn't have to involve a union. The National Labor Relations Act protects employees slash agents of your company to engage in protected concerted activity to improve wages, 
and working conditions. In other words, to collaborate. I guess the best I can convey it is the National Labor Relations Board and, the, and, the, and their past rulings have essentially said that the internet is a modern day water cooler where employees get together and talk about things that are going wrong with their companies and ways that they can collectively work together to improve the conditions and terms of their employment. So that means you cannot have overly restrictive policies, social media policies that overly limit employee speech. Now, they can't go on there and just go on a tear, a rant that has no basis. In fact, I'm not saying that at all. But you cannot, you have to be very careful about the limitations you place on what they say about uh, the conditions of their employment at your company when engaging with other employees. Uh, so make sure you have an NLARA, National Labor Relations Act, NLARB, compliant social media policy. And actually, the National Labor Relations Board has provided some guidance recently on compliant policies. And there's some good ones out there. So talk to your counsel about that. And, and by the way, once you put this in place, provide training to your employees, your key employees, well, actually all employees uh, that, are, that, that work for you, collect a check from you on your social media policy. Because policies are wonderful. But if they're not communicated, they're just not going to be helpful to defend, to offer as a defense. One thing I discovered uh, that I think is a pretty neat tool to protect your firm's online reputation and to discover whether or not someone is, this happens, I've, I've heard quite a bit now, is people will go on the MLS, steal a picture of a property, post it on a completely fake site, and with an advertisement saying, send a $1,000 deposit and we'll mail you the keys. The people mail the $1,000 deposit, they show up, there's already a family in there. That's why I encourage firms to set themselves up on Google Alert or some similar search, some similar internet service providers feature. And what these, what these alerts essentially do is if you type in keywords, anytime they come up, you'll be emailed about them. So agents might want to post property addresses that their property management, they do property management for to see if somebody has posted one of these fake sites out there so they can get ahead of the fraud and report it to the police. Companies want, might want to do this to determine what's being said about their company online. And, and it's a pretty simple tool to set up. So I encourage you to check that out. Okay, if I would say that there are two things that keep me up at night besides my kids, it would be antitrust liability and ADA compliance. Okay, so let's walk through antitrust liability first. Antitrust laws are taken very, very seriously by the federal government. And the National Association of Residential Property Managers, although they come together to do better for the industry as a whole. And the same thing with the, the National Association of Realtors. They're a collective that tries to come together for a group of, of folks that try to come together to better improve the industry for the public and for the provider. But sometimes folks that individual competitors engage in activity that could give rise to antitrust liability. And you know, considering the number of individual practitioners that compete and post online, we have to be especially careful about antitrust liability. 
In a nutshell, federal and state antitrust laws are designed to protect competition for the public. So you'll want to avoid posting and electronically communicating explicitly or implicitly anything suggesting price fixing arrangements, group boycotts, and market allocation agreements. If, if the federal government, whoever, whichever agency prosecutes this, because there are several that do, if they find that there's a willful attempt to restrain trade, the person engaged in it could be subject to a felony. A felony. They could also be subject to treble damages, extraordinarily extraordinary damages that could put them out of business. So one thing that concerns me is that I, I, I sometimes look on on these online forums and someone will say th something to the effect of, "Look, this is ridiculous. Why don't we just agree that everybody should charge an administrative fee of X?" Well, everybody on that site at that moment that is engaged in that industry and is a competitor is now in a pickle. In this sense, an attempt was just made to price fix. And what needs to happen in that case is you don't, staying silent isn't enough. You need to loudly disassociate yourself from the comment if you're on that online forum and you see it. And you can do it politely. You can say, we all respect Bob, but I just want everybody to know neither my company nor any of my agents agree to set any fees with our competitors. This also goes for boycotts. Uh, this happened many years ago, but there was a case in which a individual sent out a letter, snail mail letter, to 10 competitors. Might have even been 20 years ago to 20 competitors in the area and said, this newspaper is charging us too much money to advertise. Let's send them a message and advertise with somebody else. Well, the newspaper got a hold of that. And because the parties that received the communication did not loudly disassociate themselves from the conspiracy, there was a presumption made that they were a participant in the conspiracy. And ultimately it resulted in a extraordinarily expensive settlement for the person that sent the letter and the parties that did not loudly disassociate themselves. So imagine that on the internet. Okay, so in short, don't discuss anything about your company's pricing models or proprietary business practices, how your company does business online or encourage others to adopt similar practices. Never suggest not working with a particular vendor to, to your competitors. It's just not worth it. And if you see somebody doing that, politely but clearly and firmly make clear that you are not in get, going to engage in that activity and that you disassociate yourself and your company from those comments. All right? That being said, this is a gray area. Gray areas scare lawyers. They also scare everybody else as well. It's, it's not limited to lawyers. So what we're seeing right now throughout the country is a number of lawsuits against businesses, both big and small, regarding whether or not their websites are ADA compliant. Uh, there's an argument being made by advocates, um, for example, advocates for folks with disabilities that say they're not able to access the benefits of these websites 
in order to enjoy their to, to enjoy the discounts that you can garner through using the websites and the benefits of being able to access the websites. And what the industry has come back and said is essentially, what are the standards? What makes a website ADA compliant? There was a private industry group that put out a list of suggested standards, ran it through the Supreme Court's website and found a number of violations on the Supreme Court's website. And so there's a current case involving Domino's where a, uh, an individual with a disability is suing he has, uh, he's blind and he is unable to access their website to order his pizza and be able to get some of the discounts that people that are able to see can get. And he's alleging that that, is a, that website's a place of public accommodation and it's protected by the Americans with Disability Act and they should provide certain mechanisms to ensure compliance for folks that can't see. For example, there have been some websites that have put in place not only visual text, but also audio text where somebody can click on a link and it reads the text as well. Well, what the industry is, a lot of folks in industry have responded to that with is, well, there are so many different types of internet technologies that people put on their website right now. Again, what is, how do we make these sites accessible and how much is it gonna cost us to make them accessible? For example, if I post a video, how do I make that ADA compliant? Uh, so Domino's uh, has petitioned the Supreme Court to hear this matter and I encourage you and your counsel to pay very careful attention to, the, to any ruling that comes out about it. Because ultimately, the Supreme Court's decision on whether or not a website has to be ADA compliant could really affect your business. So I wanted to keep you aware of that. Um, I believe that the petition has been filed. I don't know that the Supreme Court has responded to the petition yet, but uh, that case the Domino's case is being closely followed, and I wanted to make you aware of it. I have no answer for you right now, but I can tell you that that's something that has been happening. Most of these lawsuits regarding ADA-compliant websites have not gone to court. There's a, a group of plaintiff attorneys have filed suits against certain companies, and these companies have settled. A lot of these companies have settled. Domino's has challenged, and we'll see what the Supreme Court says. And moving forward, I wanted to give you my email address should you have any questions about my presentation. I'm so grateful for you listening, and now I'm available for any questions you might have. Hi, um, Blake, you have one question. I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer it, but maybe you can direct the person. Sure. They ask, is it legal in California to put into the rental agreement that the tenant agrees to not post any negative comments? And we also agree not to post negatively about them. And if they did, there could be legal action taken. Okay, so generally speaking, I, I don't know California law. That would have to be, I would check counsel in, in, in California. I also uh, provided a link to the National Council of State Legislatures that might have some information about those provisions in California. I have seen courts in other states that have not been very positive on agreements that set forth before 
things go bad, that you can't post anything bad about me if something does go bad. Now, that's not to say that's going to be true in California. So I think California Council should be consulted. What was the reference to a company that sets the algorithm for keywords? Uh, the algorithm for keywords? Well, I think what I was referring to was Google Alerts. Google Alerts has a system, and some other internet service providers also provide this, search engines provide this, where, like, for example, Google Alert, you can put in a your company name. And every time that company name is mentioned on the internet, you're, you're notified about it. So that could be particularly useful if you advertise a rental property in an area where you've seen a lot of rental fraud, especially to determine whether or not some fraudster has posted that address online. You'd get a notification about it if you put that address and uh, it, come up, it came up elsewhere. I think that's the algorithm they were referring to. All right, Blake. Um, you all have Blake's email address on the website, so please feel free to email Blake with any questions that you have that you did not have time to ask here. And again, we thank Blake for joining us today. And it's been my honor to join you, and thank you so much for having me. So, hold on, Blake. One more quick question. Sorry. Okay, sure. Hit me. Please confirm if copying an article, as long as you name the creator, you're okay. Negative. If I if if I went on Narpum's website and copied something that you all not well just, let's let's give a better example because I'm talking to Narpum members. Let's say that I go on a um, an author's website and I copy a portion of their book or an article they've written or a news story that's been written on a a website. I copy it. I paste it onto my website, I might give attribution, but I don't believe that provides me full protection because I've never asked for, for permission to use that article. I just took it and put it on the website. And I hope somebody notices who wrote it, but ultimately, I don't believe that's going to protect you from copyright uh, infringement if you take an entire article or excerpts of an article and post it on your site. I think the best course of action is to shoot an email to the author of that article, ask them for permission to use it, and nine out of ten times, they're more than happy to grant you that permission. They might send you an email saying, sure, go ahead, because they want to promote their article. Or you could just say, hey, here's a great article that's very useful for folks in the property management market, and then just include a link, and it takes them to that person's site or that individual news source site. That's exactly what NARPM does with anyone who asks to copy our website or any of our articles. We ask for permission, and then you reprint our information. So that was great. Thank you. You're welcome. And most associations do that. Okay. Well, thank you. And maybe we'll have Blake back for round two. We appreciate everything you've done, Blake, and you all have a great day. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to NARPM Radio. For more details on today's subject, refer to the show notes or visit narpum.org radio, and we'll see you next time on NARPM Radio.